Welcome to the 337th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I talk with historians Alex Jania and Christina Berman about COVID and disaster memory in East Asia. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at its new time of 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls recorded anytime as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Let us hear from you if you'd like to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 9th, 2021, there are 4,598,888 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Making Space for Grief, an LA art exhibit honors healthcare workers killed by COVID-19. It was written by Anna Almendrala and appeared in the LA Times in partnership with Kaiser Health News, March 11th, 2021. Kami Ronskovitz has attended Zoom memorials for her daughter, Sarah, a 32-year-old emergency room social worker who died of COVID-19 on May 30th. She longs to gather Sarah's friends and family in one place so they can embrace and mourn together. It just isn't the same, said Ronskovitz. You feel like your grieving is not complete. The United States has millions of people like Ronskovitz whose grief is compounded because families, which in her case includes Sarah's fiance and two young children, have been unable to publicly celebrate the lost lives with in-person memorials. Honolulu artist Taji Terasaki is stepping into that breach with a project to commemorate fallen healthcare workers. Terasaki first projects an image of the deceased onto a screen of mist droplets. He then photographs several dynamic ephemeral portraits of the mist projections and then prints these photos onto a long scroll. The effect is a mashup of traditional kakajiku or Japanese hanging scrolls and a gigantic film strip. Each scroll is then placed in an inscribed wooden box and can be unfurled for display. The effect is bittersweet, said 59-year-old Ronskovitz, who lives in Benicia, California, and saw the images online. I can see her smiling face, but I can also see it evaporating in that picture, she said. For me, it feels like it's representative of Sarah's body dissipating and her spirit moving forward. So far, Terasaki has created 15 mist portraits for healthcare workers who include radiologists, janitors, and nurses. The scrolls can be unfurled up to 20 feet and are installed in the Japanese American National Museum in downtown Los Angeles, which is closed due to COVID-19 restrictions. The exhibit, called Transcendience Memorial to Healthcare Workers, will make its world debut virtually Saturday. That was back in March. And you can check that out online. Along with other artwork Terasaki has made to commemorate pandemic heroes. 
transcendent is Terasaki's neologism from transcendent and transient. It's a concept he has used in past exhibits on immigration, the U.S. migrant border crisis, and the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. At the beginning of the pandemic, Terasaki passed his lockdown time cutting photographs and weaving them back together to create a pixelated screen-like images of people who had helped others during the pandemic. He posted these works on Instagram every day for 100 days. As deaths mounted, he decided to create memorials and came across Lost on the Frontline, a collaborative reporting project between Kaiser Health News and The Guardian. The series features short profiles of healthcare workers who have died of COVID-19, as well as investigative stories about the lack of personal protective equipment many workers endured as they showed up for work during the pandemic. Who's sacrificing the most? It's these healthcare workers who are out there risking their lives, said Terasaki. Terasaki reached out to Kaiser Health News to see if he could add to the collaboration with the memorial scrolls, and then set out to contact the families featured in Lost on the Frontline. Expanding the project to incorporate art is going to widen the project's reach, said Christina Jewett, Kaiser Health News' lead investigative reporter for Lost on the Frontline. To date, the team has identified more than 3,500 healthcare worker deaths caused by COVID-19 and is the most comprehensive database, as states have different requirements about recording and reporting these deaths. Alina Cauley contributed a portrait of her father to Terasaki's project to keep his memory alive. She recalled receiving the news that her father had unexpectedly died of the disease. Cauley let out a primal scream and dropped to the floor, sobbing. This was March 30th, 2020, when COVID-19 tests were scarce, hospitals were scrambling to obtain ventilators and masks, and the U.S. had just passed 3,000 deaths from the disease. Polly's father, 74-year-old hospital radiologist David Wolin, was the first person Cauley knew who tested positive for the virus. A month later, Wolin's wife, Susan, Cauley's stepmother, also succumbed to the disease. Because New York City was under stay-at-home orders, no visitors came to comfort Kali's grieving family. No one could relieve them from the pressures of childcare or chores, as a friend might have done before the pandemic. Kali recalled that about one hour after learning her father had died, she was back in the kitchen, blinking back tears as she prepared lunch for her two young children. Kali leaned on her husband for support as she went through the logistics of grief throughout 2020, which included clearing out her father and stepmother's apartment in Lake House. She now wears a ring her father received as a gift and sometimes visits his grave or sits on a park bench at the Brooklyn Hospital Center named in his memory. And she's grateful for opportunities to keep his name and image circulating, especially since her family has yet to organize an in-person memorial. It's so great to have people remember him and think of him and want to honor him, said 41-year-old Kali. I love having his name out there and letting people know who he was. Karasaki, age 62, has explored death, grieving, and rituals in past work. The 2017 performance art exhibit, Feeding the Immortals, invited the public to bring food that reminded them of a deceased loved one and to speak about the person and place the food on an altar. The work was a reaction to the 2016 death of his father, Paul Terasaki, a pioneering organ transplant scientist who had been detained as a child with his family in an internment camp in Arizona during World War II. After his father died, Taji Terasaki struggled to connect with the Christian funeral services organized to remember him, to remember his father, and decided to create his own ritual. 
Even before the pandemic, Terasaki felt that American culture weakly commemorated its dead. Now that the pandemic has put a chill on community death rituals, the lack is even more glaring. Terasaki is sending a seven-foot scroll to each family participating in the art project in the hope they might unfurl and display it once a year on the death anniversary. Terasaki also hopes to create small community memorials throughout the United States. What's really missing in our culture is the ritual and ceremony to really get quiet and reflect and just experience the silence, he said. We need to find a space of reverence for the lost. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today, and this is one we've really been looking forward to, and I want to introduce my guests, Christina Berman. Christina Berman is currently an assistant professor at the Department of Religion at Florida State University. Her research focuses on the history of knowledge in and about pre-modern Japan, covering topics from divination and astrology to disasters. She's been a member of the Teach 311 Collective since 2011, and is currently an editor for the site. My second guest is Alex Jania. Alex is a PhD candidate in the Department of History at the University of Chicago, focusing on modern Japan. He's currently writing a dissertation on post-disaster memorialization in the 20th and 21st century in Japan and its place in global memory culture. Alex's scholarship is part of a larger commitment to share the stories of Japanese disaster survivors for English-speaking audiences, and in particular, He's been involved in public history efforts like Humans of Minami Sanriku and the Osaka Committee of Chicago Sister Cities International Kazuna Project, which both focus on the stories of 311 survivors in the Tohoku region. I should note also that Alex is a member of the production team of COVID Calls. Alex and Christina, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start the way I generally do, find out where you are and what the pandemic situation is looking like there. Christina, can I start with you on that, please? So um, I'm in my storage room in Tala uh, Tallahassee, Florida. Um, I wish I could say with confidence the what the pandemic situation is here. Uh, the statistics are coming out not as frequently as they used to, once a week now in Florida. Um, I can say that uh, the once a week statistics we are getting from Florida State University, we have a, a low positivity rate for our testing, which we're doing on campus, which is encouraging. It means that we are testing a lot of people, but um, that doesn't catch everyone because some people do get tested off campus and some people don't get tested at all. So there's a lot that I think is unknown and we're all kind of grappling with this uncertainty and the limits to what we can say when we get information about students uh, who may have tested positive and uh, the limits of the information which we get about students. Just as a point of information, um, is it still the case in the state of Florida that the governor's office has stuck to uh, the idea of a, a mask ban and uh, vaccine is not mandatory in any public facilities? Is that still the situation there? I believe that's still the situation. Um, with the public schools, uh, a court just struck down 
uh, the ban on mask mandates, but uh, that does not seem to have applied to public universities. I see. I had to explain the concept of a mask mandate ban to a colleague here in South uh, in South Korea, and it took a while uh, to and, and not for, on his part. It took me a while to sort of come, somehow like convey the concept. It's um, it's quite something. Okay, well, thank you for that update from 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 Florida, Alex. Let me bring you in. Same question: Where are you calling from, and what's it looking like there? Yeah, so I usually um, am in Chicago, but I am for the first time since the pandemic started actually visiting my parents in Littleton, Colorado, which is just south of Denver. I just arrived last night, um, so I can't really speak to the Denver situation. But in my neighborhood in Chicago, which is uh, I, we, me and my wife recently just moved to the north side, I feel like uncertainty, like Christina was talking about, is like a perfect way to define the moment that we're in. Like there are people who I've noticed have started to wear masks outside again, usually maybe older people, maybe people who are immunocompromised, you know, you can never be sure, but that sort of freedom that we felt, or at least in Chicago at the beginning of the summer, when vaccines started to go out and we began to take our masks off um, in outdoor spaces, especially I think has kind of like pulled back a little bit. Um, and me and my, my, my wife are also sort of engaging in that uncertainty. Like we'll go to, um, public restaurants, but you know, we will only eat outside. And I think that that uncertainty is kind of like around the start of the University of Chicago fall quarter, which doesn't happen until around October. So I think a lot of students and faculty and graduate students are kind of anticipating a return to campus. Um, and we're excited for a lot of reasons, but also there are kind of a lot of unknowns with the Delta variant, especially how hard it's hit some of the country. So uncertainty is definitely the watchword of our pandemic day, I think. In the middle of that, what, what has the university decided then? Is it a vaccine mandatory situation, a mask mandatory situation, or are they allowing discretion on that? Yeah, we are lucky um, in the University of Chicago, they are mandating the vaccine with, you know, very kind of like limited um, exceptions for um, people with, you know, various um, health and religious uh, reasons. And then there's also an on-campus mask mandate. And I think the only exception uh, for having your mask up in class is if a teacher can pull down their mask to make their point clear to the class, which I think is um, understandable, you know, maybe given some uh, you know, barriers to access. But I don't know if I myself, I'll be teaching this this fall. I don't know if I, I myself will kind of do that to make myself clear. Maybe I'll favor uh, writing on the board or something like that. Mm. Um, if, uh, you know, just for my own sort of uh, comfort. But I, I feel pretty well protected and about as, uh, you know, <laughs> as confident as I can going into an in-person uh, fall quarter. So I've been asking guests also if they wouldn't mind sharing a memory. Uh, you both are scholars of memory, so this is an especially hard question for you. I, real, I realize that. Um, Alex, I'm going to stay with you on this, I, and, and it's kind of impossible, but I, I'd like to hear your take on it anyway. Some some memory that really sticks with you and still resonates now about this time. Yeah, whenever, I mean, so being a part of the COVID calls production team, I, I've thought about the answers to these questions a lot, but the first one I already, I always come back to is right at the beginning of sort of mitigation measures around the University of Chicago, which 
came pretty swiftly after the pandemic was declared by the WHO <clears throat> on March 11th. And me and my wife, I think the day after decided, okay, we're going to go to store and kind of like stock up for two weeks a month worth of food and, you know, get ready to ride this thing out. And the memory that most sticks with me is entering into the Jewel Osco off the corner of campus and it just being kind of like the scene of collective panic. And I have luckily never been in the situation where I have to like evacuate from a hurricane or any sort of kind of like slow moving, impending um, hazard event. But that, so that was like my first time experiencing what it was like to be in a crowded grocery store with people just kind of like trying to figure out what was safe, what was unsafe to grab. I know I, looking back, I, I especially find myself kind of thinking about the various irrational choices I made. I was in this grocery store unmasked with like this mass of humanity and we were all just sort of breathing on each other um, because we went, you know, right after the workday when a lot of people go to the grocery store. But I was like very conscious to only pick up things that were packaged, right? Because we were all kind of like worried, what if this is transmitted, um, you know, by surfaces? And so like, okay, everything we have to get is cleaned. You know, I won't get fresh vegetables. I won't get fresh fruits. Who knows who've touched that? You know, how, do we, how are we supposed to clean that and quarantine it? And yeah, just like that, that sort of raw emotion of panic. And I think we had already sort of like started to feel it. Um, and, you know, there were some anxious conversations around campus in the days leading up to um, what was my last trip to the grocery store for a while on March 12th. But experiencing it in the flesh, you know, with all these sort of people um, is something I'll probably never forget. Uh, thank you for sharing that. And, um, boy, it really it brings back a strong memory for me of, of being in a grocery store in New Jersey where everyone was trying to act totally normal. I mean, it had almost a sort of a Super Bowl weekend vibe. I don't know how to, else to say it. You know, people were just, and particularly with packaged foods and things like that, um, people were just filling up those baskets, but acting totally normal. But now I've wondered, and there may be some epidemiology on this. I haven't seen it, but um, how many of the that week, how many sort of grocery store super spreader events there were because people were in the store unmasked, crowded together in line, the assumption was it wasn't moving yet through the United States, through most of the U.S. And so people fe still felt comfortable in the grocery store. And the next time I went back, which was six weeks later, it was a totally different, a totally different world. Christina, let me ask you um, same question, some memory that you might be willing to share with us that really captures this time for you. Um, for me, it, it not so much the uh, early preparation days of the pandemic, although I'm sure that I was very anxious. I ended up switching to grocery delivery fairly early on. Um, but something that sticks in my head um, has to do with the logistics of adjusting to things like quarantine measures and the different rules across the states. Um, I was driving from New York State back to Florida um, because I had gone up to New York State to help out my parents. And I had done the quarantining. I had to do the testing and all of the rules that were put in place for Florida residents uh, in states like New York. Um, on the way back down, though, as I was driving through Pennsylvania, uh, they set up a quarantine rule um, in Pennsylvania. 
So my original plan was to stop in Pennsylvania for the night. And I saw one of those highway signs that flashed saying, you know, quarantine rule. Um, I forget exactly what I said. It's a COVID-19 quarantine in place. And so I had to then call up some hotels and get more details on what was going on and drive much longer than I had intended to get to a state where I was allowed to stop for the night. Um, wow, thank you. I hadn't heard a story like that before. I mean, it also speaks to your fastidiousness about following that, <laughs> that rule. But did you have to go much further south in Pennsylvania, if you don't mind me asking? I could stop in Maryland, but I ended up stopping in Virginia that night. Wow. Well, thanks to you both for getting us started with these personal memories. And Christine, let me stick with you. Um, we're we're going to talk about memorial and memorial history in East Asia, but um, I want to give you a chance just to tell us more generally about your work and how you come into this topic in the first place. So um, my interest in disasters dates back to 2004, uh, which was a particularly bad year in Japan and in the Pacific, uh, the Indian Ocean region. Um, so I was in Japan for the Chuetsu, the 2004 Chuetsu earthquake, um, which we felt in Yokohama and a number of people went out to volunteer and help during our breaks. Um, and then there was the Indian Ocean tsunami. And then in 2005, there was the Takarazuka line derailment. And this got me thinking, um, my initial research had been on ritual. And narrowing down ritual was one of the things which I was supposed to do on this trip. And I ended up narrowing it down in terms of disaster, rituals in response to disaster. And part of this was from seeing um, the memorial services for the victims of the Takarazuka rail, rail delignment. Um, which was very striking. It was a large um, domed flower centerpiece with a giant memorial pillar in the center of it and a number of official people coming and, and saying their apologies and giving their respects. And the commonality that you have uh, with American memorials and the differences really struck me and made me interested in disasters as a whole. And so that's when I started studying disasters and my, started my interest in disasters. It's interesting to, to me, I'd like to, maybe you can say a little bit more about this, the, those moments in time, sort of disaster events that grabbed your attention, but they're, they're really variable. We have a, a train derailment, a tsunami, a seismic activity, um, so from the beginning, you were thinking broadly about disaster? Yes. So from the beginning, I was thinking very broadly. Um, I was doing some research on the Kamakura period, so the 13th century in Japan. 
And I was looking at famines in particular at that time. So this look at the at earthquakes had me thinking about famine. So I was thinking about disaster or disruptive events in a very broad sense. Alex, let me ask you the same question if you want to just kind of give us an overview of how you find your way into this topic of disaster history and particularly memorial history. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually struck how similar me and Christina's story uh, stories are, although you can tell we have like a slight generational <laughs> difference. So when I would start studying Japanese in my undergrad, um, because I, I had always, always known I wanted to do history and I was looking for um, you know, a region to study because we kind of, in, in that period, at least had to specialize. I was really interested in Japan. I started learning the language as part of a language um, exchange sort of intensive summer program. I went to the 311 disaster zone in 2012. So during that time, it was, it still was a disaster zone. You had debris and rubble, you know, piled up everywhere. We had to stay with um, a group of volunteers. Um, who were connected to my sensei from my uh, undergraduate university, Bailey University, and in some sort of like, you know, three degrees of separation way, but we stayed in a trailer in the disaster zone and we volunteered there. And while we were volunteering, which included sort of like bringing English language books to the local um, school, which had luckily survived um, in this town um, that we stayed at, Minami Sanriku, we volunteered at the community garden and we also just met with a lot of disaster survivors what I was most struck by is that I was just seeing all this material you know destruction around and and people living in you know their own sort of temporary housing and trailers um, and people just describing you know losing their loved ones when you know they would they couldn't hold on to their hands when you know the tsunami waves came um, what they would always request of of me and my fellow um, language learners was that we listen to their stories, that we remember them and that we share them because they already had this sense that um, the media and maybe sort of like the general public, um, international public had already sort of forgotten or were starting to forget about the disaster. So they were desperate um, to have their stories remembered and shared. And I, you know, was struck thinking like, oh, they're not asking for material aid. They're not asking for money. They're not asking for, you know, X, Y, Z, they're asking for remembrance. And that really kind of like set me on a long path to question why remembrance was so important in the post-disaster context in Japan. Um, and just in, in general, I, looking back now, I, I guess, when, what was I supposed to expect this? Like a college student who was going and visiting, they were probably not gonna ask me to change governmental policies. Um, you know, there's still probably really urgent needs that they had on the ground. But I think it still kind of stands. The memory was central to their approach to sort of reconstruction, rehabilitation, and recovery. Um, and that's really the sort of deep impression that was like made on me uh, really early on. I wondered if you think, Christina, you know, how how do you think memory and memorial function in disaster, generally speaking? And and I recognize. As a historian myself, I'm a little uncomfortable with any question that moves outside out of context. But, but just if we can generalize for a second, and we think about disasters and and across time, what is the role of memory and memorialization? Well, I can say what um, 
disaster and risk planning says the the role of memory is, and that's to reduce future risk, that uh, past disasters can repeat. And um, so this is what you have a lot of times in the way that disaster memorials, even from a thousand years ago, get mobilized these days. Um, is the idea that by listening to this story, by learning the lesson, people will be better prepared and you'll have a reduced fatality uh, rate, a reduced morbidity rate in the next disaster. But when I'm thinking about it a little more objectively, because I'm a little skeptical about this talismatic use of memory, um, I think an important thing about memory is a con- uh, continuation of identity, of a um, creation of a community that still has a tie to what happened before, um, and the preservation of communities which have been struck rather severely um, by natural hazard and by technological disaster. Alex, just give you a chance to to comment on that, or or also share your thoughts on the sort of role more generally of of how memory works as a part of what we say disaster is. Yeah, I think um, I mean Christina's answer was wonderful, so I hope my follow up is good. But I, I think of this in terms of um, emotions, and I, I do a lot of work in emotional history, so I kind of like try to interrogate what the various emotions people are mobilizing, defining, engaging in as they sort of work at remembering, memorializing disaster events. And what I found is for a lot of people, I don't think this is the case for all people. I think some people very much do not want to remember a disaster event and want to cut it off as a sort of um, you know, outlier in their lives. It's very, It can be very painful for some people, but for those that do choose to engage in these memorial practices. And I'm thinking in particular of uh, people that go out of their way and are disaster storytellers who I I have worked with a lot on, especially on the Tohoku coast in Japan. Um, This is something that's very healing for them that they feel called to do, that they feel that they need to do. um, I think for various personal reasons, Um, but I, I don't think we should overlook that element in disaster memorialization. It's this opportunity to, you know, cope and process what happened. Some, some, sometimes things that are very hard to process or just hard to integrate into one's life story. So I guess I'm kind of giving the individual aspect of uh, Christina's answer. It's a way to sort of like narrate that experience for the individual um, and to incorporate it into a life story that, you know, makes sense. Because I think in the experience of a disaster in the moment, sometimes it's, it's really hard to even just make physical sense of what's happening to you. Um, and there's a number of examples that we can kind of talk about further in the call, but I think that that's a really important thing, the sort of integration and emotional work that, it, that it's doing, whether that's sort of acknowledged or, or left unsaid for some people. Christina, um, focusing in on your time period, which you're specialized in pre-modern Japan, um, what kind of memorial practices are you looking at? Uh, and, and I'm curious also if there are regional variations or disaster type variations. You talked about your interest in famine. Of course, earthquakes and tsunamis are 
are longstanding features in Japanese, deep Japanese history. What would we see if, if we went to pre-modern Japan and looked for the evidence of disaster and, and how disaster shapes culture? Well, it depends on the time period. Um, right now, one thing I'm particularly interested in are these physical markers um, of disaster memory, these memorial stones. Um, they were picked up a lot um, after the 2011 uh, tsunami as uh, warnings from the past that were ignored by the later um, generations. And that made me very curious as to how they were put together because there are very few stones um, from the early time periods. In the, in the earlier time periods where you tend to find the memory of disaster is in miracle tales and origin tales of temples and shrines. That's where the disasters tend to show up if they don't show up in political memory, uh, which they do in particular because they were um, uh, seen as omens and seen having a real political importance. Um, so the interesting thing is that these disaster stones appear rather late in the 18th century for the most part, although there is a 17th century example, uh, which I really am looking forward to studying in more detail sometime when I can get back to Japan. Um, and there is some regional variation. Um, you see a lot of variation based on temple affiliation. Um, most of these memorials are um, for the repose of the dead. And um, uh, you have uh, visitors. Visitors, yes. <laughs> At least I have visitors sometimes. Um, and uh, so these memorials uh, for the repose of the dead um, therefore take a uh, particular format depending on um, uh, the structure of the religion that they're, the, for example, the sect of Buddhism, which they are tied to. Um, so you do have a bit of variation there. Um, I have seen a little evidence of regional-based variation as opposed to sectarian-based variation. But I am looking into that in a little more detail. I think it has to do with the political history um, of two separate um, uh, areas that were faced with tsunami, for example. And I remember that news reporting as well about the, the memorial stones. They were often characterized as tsunami stones uh, after um, the March 11 Great East Japan earthquake tsunami and the nuclear meltdown at Fukushima Daiichi. And they were often sort of, it was usually a sentence or two in a news piece that said the um, the warning from the past was clear and these had functioned across time for people and they were sort of, you know, they were presented, if, if at all, in any detail as this sort of like another example of where humans, human hubris had forced them to neglect the past. I have to say I'm sort of temperamentally inclined to like an argument like that, but at the same time, I always worried that it kind of flattened the cultural complexity of how those stones must have must have functioned. I, and I sort of wanted to follow up with you a little bit more about about those. I mean, how important were those memorial stones when people thought about things like, should we live here? 
um, or should we remember this tsunami on a regular basis? Or they just become part of the part of the landscape, like a civil war. Well, like before a few years ago, like civil war memorials or revolutionary war memorials in the United States used to be. I think that there was a great deal of variation. Um, you find, for example, memorial stones that were abandoned or buried. Um, so they they died effectively as memory. And um, many places rebuilt, even as they were commemorating. Um, Tanjoji, which is a temple in Chiba Prefecture, they do a monthly memorial for a 1703 tsunami. Uh, which is an amazing example of living memory. And there is a memorial stone on the temple grounds. Um, they rebuilt the temple about where it had been. So despite the fact there had been a tsunami, there wasn't an idea of uh, moving it necessarily. Um, a lot of these warning stones, that they seem to date from the 1933 tsunami in the Tohoku region. And there is a history there where um, the government came in and told people to rebuild and relocate. And so those stones are probably tied to that particular history more than what you find in previous stones, which are really more about memorialization and not necessarily about warning about future risk. Alex, let's bring it up to the um, 21st century and talk about you know, your research and, and 311, is there, in what ways do you find some persistence across time of those older memorial forms as you start to think about the Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami? Well, I mean, this is a wonderful sort of segue into thinking about 311 because, they, you know, there these stories ran in Japan too, that, you know, these tsunami stones were there and, you know, people for various reasons sort of didn't you know, heed these warnings. Um, and some one particularly good story I like is one stone in Ofunato where um, was built in like a certain location to get people to, you know, run to higher ground. And then in 1960, when the, the uh, tsunami that was uh, the result of an earthquake in Chile happened, it sort of went up to the stone. And so they're like, okay, let's move it further inland uh, to warn people better. And then in 311, it kind of gets inundated again. And so people start to talk about the stone as being cursed and maybe actually they, they should just throw it in the ocean um, to uh, you know avoid the tsunami keep coming closer and closer into inland. So it, it really kind of depends on the locality, whether or not the stone was a sort of active um, you know, agent in their consciousness about disasters. Other stones, I think, very much became sort of part of the background um, as sort of the rhythms of everyday life drew people closer to the shore because these are communities that you know make a lot of their uh, money and a lot of their economy runs around fishing um, and you know using the ocean as a, as a resource um, and I, I was really struck by talking to someone on the the Tohoku coast um, who had lived there all his life and he talked about how even though the tsunami happened the ocean was still his friend. And I was blown away because for me as a, a native Midwesterner, my sort of er disaster um, is a tornado disaster. And so like, I, I literally have nightmares about tornadoes uh, all the time uh, for some reason. And so I can't, couldn't imagine a tornado being my friend. And I told him that and he was like, well, you know, this 
this the ocean is still where a lot of people like gain their livelihoods. And there's just a sort of recognition that they have to live in a certain sort of way with these hazards that might pop up um, from time to time. And how to do that in a way that's, you know, sustainable balance is something that they're thinking about. But I do think a lot about this sort of mismatch between the geo the geophysical time scales that we deal with when we talk about seismic activity and then the human time scales. And this is something that I think pops up again and again in my research about the inherent sort of like fragility of both human infrastructure and memory and memorial infrastructure. Um, because I look at just a bunch of examples of memorials that, as Christina so eloquently put it earlier, die, they, they don't continue. And so when I'm doing this work with a bunch of um, memory workers on the Tohoku coast during 311, I am painfully aware, and I think they're also aware that the moment is very fraught and fragile. Um, because the funding kind of dries up once the attention sort of goes away from a certain disaster zone. People pass away, people kind of like have various time commitments. And a lot of the, you know, memorial workers that I've been in touch with were very anxious at the time when I was there doing my research for my dissertation to secure funding, which was in 2018-2019, to secure funding to, you know, really keep these institutions going. I think the Japanese government, both local, prefectural, and, and national, have put admirable money towards memorial infrastructure, but there is going to be a lot that is going to be lost just because it's going to become financially unfeasible and people are just going to move away or stop doing it. So I think that's the sort of thing I think about is that there is usually a vibrant memory culture that happens somewhat spontaneously after disaster, but you can kind of see it start to um, erode, um, it, you know, quite quickly after a disaster event. Christina, you've been involved with the Teach 311 organization. I guess you were a co-founder of that of that group. Uh, and I, I want to give a plug for that. I wonder if you could say a little bit about that as a, a sort of a really unique kind of way to bring teaching and sort of transnational understanding. I, I know it's not... Ex explicitly a memorial project, but now when I look back at it, it also seems to be part of this process of keeping the memory from being buried, as you said earlier. Yeah, um, I, I'm not a co-founder. Um, I did join fairly early on, uh, started as a contributor and then got quickly roped into the, the project. Um, there is a memorial component um, to how we have run Teach 311, particularly with the timestamp um, that posts were done. So we would do posts monthly on the anniversary and at the anniversary time. Um, even now that we are including COVID, and so therefore we're less tied to the moment of the Tohoku tsunami, um, we have kept the particular time stamp, uh, the 46, in terms of the minute of the hour. Uh, we still use that as um, when we post material. Um, but part of the Teach 311 project has been very much trying to understand and trying to start communication 
And so that's why translation has been uh, such a large part of the project, not just annotation of, of sources, of introducing people to sources, of having this communication among scholars and between scholars and educators of, of sources, but also to um, reach out to the people who might get ignored in scholarly um, education to translate their words and make those words more available to in, in, widen the discursive sphere to include more people in this conversation. check that out at teach311.org. And I want to remind everyone that you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about disaster memorials in Japan with Alex Jania and Christina Berman. Um, Alex, let's bring it into COVID then with this background that we've laid out there. What do you see happening right now in, in Japan in terms of already discussions around remembering the dead of COVID? How does that connect with previous pandemics in Japanese history? If it does, how does it refract back through 311? Take us into the world of COVID memory. Oh man, I mean, it's so difficult because it's tied in with so many moments that are happening in Japan right now with uh, the Olympics, and then also with the 10th anniversary of 311. I, I'll kind of leave it to Christina to talk about historical pandemics and, and epidemics, because um, I think she is a little more uh, well qualified to talk about that. But for me, my experience sort of looking at the intersection of COVID-19 and 311, and this is, I don't know if this answers your question in particular, but it has added to the sense that I was getting when I was doing my research uh, that the 311 survivors were really afraid that 311 would become overshadowed. And I think in this way, we have to think about disasters and disaster anniversaries. I think we're thinking about anniversaries a lot this week, at least in the American context, because 9-11, 20th anniversary is coming up, um, as existing in a greater ecosystem of periodization of dates, um, you know, et cetera. And a lot of what I was hearing from my interlocutors uh, on the Tohoku coast was that with the change of the rain era, um, which is, this is kind of like a Japan inside baseball thing, but with the abdication of the emperor, uh, a new sort of like emperor's reign had started in Japan. Um, and I was there in 2019. So the Heisei emperor had you know stepped down and this new era of Reiwa had started. So there was this fear that, um, 311, along with sort of like coupling it together with the 2004 Chuetsu earthquake and uh, the Great Hanshin earthquake in uh, Kobe, would be all sort of lumped together as a problem that, you know, was in the Heisei period and that now is going to be sort of transcended um, as we look forward to this new Reiwa period. So this is probably a little maybe unfamiliar for American or maybe Western listeners. Um, but these rain eras are very like a strong identity marker in Japan. You know, you'll say you're a 
Showa Ko or like a child of the Showa era um, in ways that maybe you wouldn't say, you know, like you're a Clinton baby or like you're a, you're a Bush baby in some sort of ways. But, um, you know, that in combination with the Olympics, which was built by the national government as the Reconstruction Olympics, they were really worried that the 311 was going to get overlooked. And so I think I fear with COVID and all the mitigation efforts that really shut down a lot of memorial services and plans for sort of like really big um, memorial activities around the 10th anniversary of 311 um, probably adds to that anxiety. And I know for storytellers in particular, it has forced them like it has forced us to get onto Zoom, uh, which, you know, a format that usually when they're telling their stories, they'll also give tours of the disaster zone. And it's a very embodied experiential uh, practice, but COVID-19, I think, really throws a wrench in that. Um, one thing I will say too, I think that COVID-19 compounds, you know, on top of this triple disaster that Japan experienced in 2011, it, you know, hits a country that is, you know, rapidly aging. And a lot of these um, localities that I talk about um, on the Tohoku coast are very old, are older um, in a lot of ways. And I, I, I always worry about my interlocutors there because a lot are elderly and I, I think about their sort of increased COVID risk. So I think this is like the sort of some of the ways that 311 and COVID-19 are, are sticking together. I, I haven't seen as much um, about the memorialization of the COVID-19 deaths themselves, but I really look forward to you know, what people are doing in that space. Christina, what are you watching for? And I'm particularly interested to know if there is a tradition of uh, pandemic memorialization in Japanese history. Well, I'm, I'm looking to see if there will be memorialization because there actually is not too much of a tradition of pandemic memorialization. There's memories of pandemic um, that you find in literature. Um, particularly in the Heian period, there were some smallpox and, uh, epidemics that get memorialized. Um, there's a great material culture of epidemics that you have in the early modern period. You have these prints, you have these medicine Buddhas that get dedicated after major pandemics, mm. but you don't have memorial stones. You don't have stones that are dedicated to the memory of those who died. It, to my knowledge, at least, except for the 19th century cholera epidemics. Something about the late 19th century, and this is the Meiji period, so we are entering into the modern period. Um, in Yokohama, there are some mass graves, and these mass graves engender, uh, for the first time, it seems to me, memorial projects. So it seems as if epidemics are private deaths for the most part, that they're handled, the memorialization is handled within the family unit, within the community unit, and not on a mass scale, not as a disaster event itself. Hmm. I suppose that, that's not unlike the United States in, in many ways. And I think about, you know, obituaries, which I read every day on COVID calls as a sort of a way that families present a personal memorial, but it's, if you read them in the aggregate, of course, it's, it's at scale on any obituary page. And so you read the full page or you go online, you read the Kaiser health news, for example, and you know, here's 5,000 health workers. So you, you see the numbers, but it's, it's still highly individualized. 
Uh, is that true in Japan, Christina? Is, is is there an obituary culture that is there a sort of personal family mourning culture where uh, we would see COVID nineteen memorialized but not aggregated at the sort of public scale? Um, yes, I think so. Um, there because there is an interesting sort of edge case, and that would be celebrities who died of COVID nineteen. Particularly early on, uh, there was one uh, celebrity, a comedian who died of COVID-19 and his brother um, basically went on the news to say, like, I could not even do the normal memorial services. I couldn't even, uh, you know, face the body of my brother because there was the concern of contagion at that time. And... Um, that would show the ways in which the private, the usual memorial culture, the usual ways of mourning are disrupted by COVID, um, which I think is one of the uh, hallmarks of uh, this particular pandemic. Um, for memorials uh, or obituaries, they tend to be for famous people more than for the everyday people. You have less of a community uh, memorial culture, I would argue. Um, instead, the memorials are more uh, event-driven um, with visiting uh, the family of the deceased, which is, again, harder to do in COVID, and with attending the ceremonies. Alex, same question to you, the, the kinds of things you may be seeing in sort of day-to-day Japanese life. I know you're not there. Um, neither of you is able to do your research there on the ground, but what you're able to follow online. And I'm particularly interested too, um, to changes we might see evolutions that come out of this period that do particularly have to do with the digital introduction of distance, um, the various ways people have had to cope with COVID. And I was really intrigued with what you were talking about, how COVID has intervened with 311 memory and at a crucial time when that 10th anniversary came and anniversaries do matter, um, how the the need to cope with COVID somehow might get locked in to the and change the way that we might have done those memorials previously. I'm fascinated by that. Yeah, I think it's it's a weird sort of double-edged sword in a lot of ways for, and I'll kind of stick to like my storyteller example, because those are the people I, I know most sort of like intimately. It, and it's a real tension because their work is sort of premised upon, a lot of them do kind of take on this idea that what they're doing is as part of OSI or disaster preparedness or, you know, disaster prevention. Um, and so what they see themselves as doing is not only retaining memory, but really imparting important lessons to people about how to act during disaster, about how to mitigate their risk, um, and how to, you know, protect, you know, other people who may be vulnerable. And so that has led, at least in my experience, um, to a lot of these organizations and people that, um, you know, do this work to take COVID very seriously, right? We had various, you know, communities in the U.S. who have, you know, maybe taken COVID less or more seriously. But because disaster prevention is so core to a lot of these storytellers' message, they really have sort of embraced Zoom as an imperfect but, you know, a useful tool to sort of 
live out that um, example they have of disaster prevention in their work. And I, I think it's, it's incredibly useful and it might push us in ways, I think, you know, kind of like this call to think about disaster in a transnational context. I was just even talking with my parents recently about how it's been awesome in the pandemic to connect with colleagues that I don't think I would have connected. You know, I don't know if I would be on this call with both of you if COVID-19 hadn't hit, or at least in the same way, maybe we would have met at a conference, but that's a very different type of relationship. And I think um, disaster storytellers on the Tolku Coast recognize that um, opportunity, but the sort of other edge of the sword too is that they were hoping in some ways that this would also draw people to the region that desperately needs, you know, people to visit and, you know, spend money there. You know, it, it sort of surprised me, but in retrospect, thinking about it, it totally makes sense that, um, you know, the, the memory culture is also very much um, intertwined in this, this the, the economic concerns of the region. So I can think of one, memorial center that's opening up in Minami Sanriku and a requirement actually to access the kind of archives they're going to store there that they have there is to go in person. And that's to encourage people to actually engage with the site itself. There's sort of questions around accessibility on there, um, but the goal is to have people visit this place and to sort of bring in um, that, you know, stimulus there. So I, like I said, there's, it's a fraught moment, um, one of much possibility, but also uh, some something that forecloses a lot of good work that was already being done. Just a quick reminder, you're listening to COVID Calls, and we're talking about disaster memorials in Japan with Christina Berman and Alex Jania. We have just a couple more minutes. So Christina, I wanted to, to bring you back in. It was a question on my mind, which I meant to ask earlier about the place of war memorials in all of this. And I know sometimes people say, well, war is not a disaster. It's some sort of separate thing. I, I don't tend to, to acknowledge that because I think war is sort of the ultimate uh, disaster that we're often coping with in society. But still, culturally, there does seem to be some parsing. And I wonder, how does like seismic memorial, tsunami memorial, and war memorial coexist in Japan? I, and I know that's a modern question in some ways, but it's also a pre-modern question too, I think. Yeah, um, and there are memorial sites to uh, the dead of pre-modern war as well. Um, particularly, these tend to be tied into folklore. Uh, Hundred-man graves or thousand-man graves, for example, these mounds. And uh, sometimes they get reused. Uh, there's a site in Choshi, um, Japan, which was known as a thousand-man mound. Um, but it was reused as a memorial to people who died in shipping disasters in the modern period. And in the pre-modern period, it was used as a memorial site uh, by various boat uh, organizations, uh, various boat ownership and boat groups. Um, so there, there is a connection there. Um, I think that there is a language of memorialization uh, that goes back to World War II um, with uh, some of the modern memorials, 
even though in shape they do not resemble the World War II memorials at all. Um, often they have very abstract designs. Um, they're made of black granite as opposed to the um, old uh, uh, gray granite, which tends to be used. Uh, but the language of the memorial services uh, that they use, the, the way the flowers are laid and the like, I do think that this ties into some of the post-war memorialization uh, after World War II. Just, we're almost out of time, but I want to give you both a chance to, to reflect maybe what you would be looking for going forward. And I ask this question, you know, historians are not archivists necessarily, but COVID has been a, a weird time for that. I mean, we've had a little bit more, more time. This disaster is a slow one. And so there is an opportunity to collect as we go. And so I wonder, you know, as you've been thinking about this time, Alex, um, what are you keeping? Uh, is it, you know, maybe it's browser tabs open. It's probably not material things, although it may be material things as well. But those markers and artifacts that you think are going to be important to memorialization efforts for this very strange pandemic time that we're living in. Oh, man, what a wonderful question, especially because I also think, um, you know, archiving and memorialization are so intertwined in my mind. I think maybe sometimes archivists think of themselves as doing one thing and memorialists doing another thing, but especially when you get these cases of disaster. I really think making the choice to archive something is in itself a sort of memorial choice, what's going to be important. I have made it a point to very early on in the pandemic, and I have many feelings uh, about this particular object. My neighbor hand sewed me a mask, you know, when we found out that masks were something that we should be wearing. And I am going to keep that, um, you know, forever. I think, you know, it's interesting for a number of embodied reasons, like, you know, maybe future generations will be able to wear it and, and kind of like try to embody what I was feeling. But it, it just is such a symbol of, some of the best things that have came, come out of COVID-19. I got really close to my neighbors. Um, I was then living in Hyde Park in Chicago. Only because of the pandemic, we would you know, talk every day sort of over the fence at a safe distance. And it struck me as like a moment when we were sort of like, you know, it, my neighbor jokingly said, I feel like I'm on the Civil War sewing uniforms for you know the boys on the front line or something like that. And it did feel like that moment. It was like a collective mm -hmm. moment of mm -hmm. helping each other. So I, I think that that would be something I want to share with future generations and something I'll keep. Thanks for that. And I, I do think that's um, that material culture and that craft culture is really important. And it's often over a lot of times when we talk about memorials, the people's mind go to, you know, large to scale. And I think that comes back to our previous conversation about war. Um, and so there's a large budget after a war. It's a function of the state. Something big gets built. Um, we've been doing research here in South Korea. Um, I've been doing research with colleagues um, who have been tracking the Sewol Ferry disaster memorialization process. And they've actually just selected the design for the Memorial and Safe Life Safety Park, which will be in Ansan, South Korea, where most of the children were who died. But what we're discovering is that the family members have really focused on craft culture 
as an active part of memorialization because it it was a bringing to it brought people together. So not just giving you something, but also getting people to sit and make something together as part of memorial practice. And so what will come out of that in the end are things which will might be kind of hard to archive. Many of them are textiles. They will degrade over time. And so the memorial was the sitting and the talking. And and if that's not recorded, that will also disappear. So that we're in this very liminal space of Sewol Memorial, where a lot of it, unless we capture it in some other ways, I was thinking about this, like we should be photographing the moments in which people are doing the textile making, because that might become what becomes the sort of tactile, tangible part of the memorial going forward. Just provoked by what you were discussing there, Alex, and the craft culture of of COVID. Christina, I don't know if any of that clicks for you or, or something you might be willing to share what you're collecting from this time. It, it does uh, click with what uh, I'm collecting. So I'm collecting as much as I can uh, records of uh, memorial activities, memorial um, uh, services or projects, particularly ephemeral ones uh, in news stories. And um, it is, uh, it reminds me of uh, this craft culture reminds me the importance of uh, museum scholars to this work because archives are not just, uh, you know, material objects or stones out in the, the uh, provinces or they're not just uh, documents that we find in an archive, um, but they are uh, these events, these happenings and the ways in which uh, museum uh, curators have managed to preserve uh, performance art. And there was a performance art piece I saw recently, which was a textile piece, but the performance was everybody contributing to the piece. So just as we, on the way out here, um, maybe to promote any museums or archives or spaces in Japan or other places that you think people should be paying attention to, uh, and Alex, you shared this in the chat, but I'm putting it here for people to see. Tell us about um, what's going on with the Kiriko project. Yeah, that was a wonderful thing that I came across in Minami Sanriku, Japan. It is amazing because it actually is something that was used to preserve community memory before the disaster. So this was something that um, a interlocutor of mine, um, Yumi um, Nishikawa-san, um, she uh, wanted to promote the history of Minami Sanriku and give people sort of pride in their place. And so she took this practice that is actually sort of based in Shinto shrine practice of cutting uh, various patterns into paper. And she gave people who lived in the central district of Minami Sanriku this project to cut a paper um, design that represented the history of their house or their shop. Um, and they came together they hung them and it was a big event. Um, but then in, you know, quickly thereafter in 2011, this entire area of Minami Sanriku was destroyed. And, but these, these designs still lived on um, with uh, Yumi's organization who kind of ran this Kiriko workshop. Um, they had these designs then made into big sort of metal aluminum plates. Um, and put them where these buildings used to be. And so people got very emotional. You know, they, they went and saw the town and they were like, well, my building isn't here, but this is sort of like a representation of that longer history. 
So it's an example of a craft culture that preceded the disaster event, but then kind of like took on new meaning. And now Minami Sanriku kind of like, uh, again, puts on these Kiriko workshops, uh, from my understanding, basically every summer. Uh, that might have changed with COVID-19, but also it's like incorporated into the design of the new town hall, et cetera. So it's like this really interesting way that they're making this very ephemeral craft because the paper is very thin, um, be a little more permanent um, and it's a way to transmit memory. Christina, I'm going to give you the final word. When we get free of this COVID trap, where's the first place you're going in Japan to do memorial work? Uh, the first place I'm going in Japan is southern Kyushu uh, to the uh, Ton Tokoro uh, area where you have a remarkable, uh, every 50 years, they establish a new stone in memory of this one tsunami. Hmm. So, and are they they're due to, what's the ongoing practice there? They're... They did one recently, so they're not due for quite some time. But oh, okay. um, Amazing. I want to get in touch with the uh, community that is uh, preserving this memory uh, from the 17th century. Oh, I just want to, uh, we're out of time for COVID calls, but that last point, I'm so brilliant that for people who do this kind of work, like Alex and Christina, we're also continually rediscovering past, pa the past, rediscovering disasters in the past. And I think people who don't do history or don't do archival work, that's often surprising that the historical record isn't just all waiting there for us to copy down, but it has to be rediscovered and, and reimagined. I, I want to remind everyone you've been watching COVID Calls, and you can catch COVID Calls most weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern time. Great discussion today with Alex Jania and Christina Berman. And I just want everyone to know today's a special day on COVID Calls. We have another episode coming up, actually starting in just about 15 minutes. The continuation of a conversation we started last year with two teachers, Rebecca Martinson and Angela Minor, and I'll also be joined on that call with the great uh, COVID calls superhero Shivani Patel. So please do join me for that um, right here on Twitter, uh, starting in just 15 minutes. And Christina and Alex, uh, I've been so eager to talk to you about this topic, and I can't wait till we can meet in person, but this will have to do for now. Thanks to you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.